Hello again, and welcome to our Governing Health Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Peregrine. Well, there was a great headline recently in the New York Times reading, the economic gauges are going nuts. Indeed, the Times kind of summed up the economic news of late, that in this unusual post-pandemic recovery, the economic signals on which policymakers rely on to inform their decisions are going haywire. Looking back from 2021's halfway point, we can see that we've gone from high unemployment and depressed prices to unprecedented labor shortages and surging inflation. And these are the things we're seeing directly in our daily lives. We can't get anybody to come to work for us, and if they do, it'll cost us a fortune. The employment rate is back up and the cost of lumber has gone down, but have you seen the price of gas lately? If these are indicators we worry about as consumers, we especially worry about them in our roles as officers, directors, committee members, executives, and advisors to healthcare systems. Do we need to care about these indicators? Simply put, as corporate stewards, we do. Then what can we make of all this? That's the more difficult question. And to help answer it, we're joined today by our old friend, John Challenger, the highly regarded CEO of Challenger Gray and Christmas, the prominent executive outplacement firm. John's going to share with us his perspective on economic trends, the messages he derives from them, and what those messages mean for board oversight generally, and for the work of key committees such as finance, human capital, and strategic planning. And of course, you've seen John on the Today Show. You've heard him on NPR. You've read his quotes. John's one of the most prominent national thought leaders today on the economy and the workforce. John's dialing in today from his office. John, welcome back to the program. It's always a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Michael. Let's start off with the obvious. This isn't the kind of recovery the experts expected a few months ago, is it? Well, it certainly is not. If you look at where we stand in the labor market by the statistics compared to where we were before the pandemic hit February 2020, it doesn't suggest we're in a recovery. For example, in February 2020, unemployment was 3.5% and there were 5.7 million people who were unemployed. Now it's 5.8% and 9.3 million people unemployed. The same thing is true for long-term unemployed workers. In February 2020, there were 1.4 million people who've been out of work for 27 weeks or more and were looking for work. Today, it's more than double, 3.8 million who are long-term unemployed. The participation rate today has dropped from 63.3% of the population down to 61.6% of the population. So on all fronts, if you look at where we stand in this labor market compared to before, just before the pandemic hit, we're in much worse shape. And yet that doesn't seem to square with the reality of the worker shortages, particularly the low wage worker shortages that we're seeing now in unprecedented ways. And I want to get to that in a second, John, but you've just prompted a question I have. I noticed a few days ago there was information that reported that consumer confidence is at an all-time high, at least for recent times. 
How do you square that with the observations you were making that the economy is not roaring back as many predicted? What economically is causing this consumer confidence do you see? Well, again, the pandemic yeah, was different in its effect on the economy than any you know, other type of event that we've faced, maybe ever, maybe historians will go back and find other similar kinds of phenomena and their impact on an economy. But we've never had a recession where, which is what we went through during the pandemic, where people's savings increased, but people were staying at home and they weren't spending. And so their spending power, especially as we've started to come out of this period of time, is at least for the present exploding. And it was even quite high at times during the recession on certain kinds of things, you know, retail, home goods, people focused you know, on those stay at home types of things in ways they had never done during the pandemic recession. But again, they're coming out of this, this period of time, a very difficult time for the economy with increased savings. And we know that the interest rates are super low. The amount of quantitative easing that the Fed has been doing for some time, which has been pouring uh, money supply dollars into our system, very low interest rates, you know, has caused uh, consumers to go out and borrow money at a rate that's been unprecedented. John, I do want to turn back now to the labor market. Our uh, clients and our colleagues who are listening to this podcast are doing so after the 4th of July holiday and spending interminable hours in the car. And I suspect one thing they all share is the number of billboards and signs they saw about help wanted and uh, uh, we're paying $18 an hour for uh, new workers and things of that nature. And it brings us back to a term you use, John, which I'm wondering is going to be now part of the lexicon for boards and the finance and human capital committees what is meant by the job participation rate, uh, first and foremost? Is this a new term or has it always been out there and we're only seeing its widespread application right now? The participation rate in some ways is another way of looking at the unemployment rate. Unemployment rate only counts people who are looking for work, are actively looking for work. So if you decide to leave the labor market you don't want to look for a job. You think right now, given the unemployment benefits that are available in many states, should be available till September, the marginal impact of going to work isn't worth it. Or if you feel like you're worried about your children and you can't get back to work right now because they're not able to go to school, you might say, I'm waiting till September. So you might have just dropped out of the labor market. And so right now, the labor participation rate is slightly different than the one I noted earlier, which was employment to population, but participation rate, which uh, looks at the amount of people who are of workforce age, who are either employed or looking for work, that has also gone through some real changes. You know, and right now, you know, that stands in, in February 2020, 63.3% of the working population was working. Uh, now it's down to, and participating, now it's down to 61.6. Again, Participation means either working or looking for work. So that's also down. It just means people have left the workforce, but they might come back in. And it's, so it's another way of thinking about unemployment and just the number of people who right now are sitting on the sidelines has really grown. 
Jan, for listeners who are either executives or board members and who are trying to make decisions in the near term about workforce at their health system or healthcare company, what are your perspectives on why people aren't coming back to work? And are they across the, the economic spectrum or compensation spectrum, or are they principally at the lower wage level? What's your view? Well, you know, the two primary reasons most cited, maybe three really, are the unemployment benefits. Some states have, a number of states, 22, have ended those benefits. So we should start as of June. So we should start to see many of them. We should start to see whether or not the impact of that in those states is either as strong as as we think or maybe less so. Uh, But those unemployment benefits, extra ones, should end in September. Um, We also have the child care issue, which I mentioned. That impacts women. That could be at higher wages. Uh, But my sense is this is mostly at the lower wages where the pressure is at its highest, you know, particularly um, we've seen a shift, you know, now as we come out of the pandemic uh, from uh, demand for workers in manufacturing and retail, construction, some of those have begun to level off. But now we're seeing as consumer, this still this consumer demand, that pent-up demand we discussed earlier. Now, as people start to think I can go out to restaurants again, I can go traveling again, uh, we're seeing uh, great demand for food service workers, truckers and delivery people, warehouse workers, um, cooks, bartenders, hotel workers. So we are seeing a shift of demand, you know, moving and demand for workers moving into those areas. But it's a nobody quite knows what the economy is going to be like when we come really out of this recession. Maybe we're going to be, you know, fully out of this recession in a uh, roaring 20s, demand is going to continue to uh, explode or whether you know we're going to see kind of the shifting from one sector to another and and some of the demand will start to even out as the supply chain disruptions you know start to work their way through the system. Like for example, the auto industry is facing immense problems and the rental car industry, you're seeing incredible jumps in in the rates for rental cars, but there just aren't any cars available because there's no chips available and chips aren't available because the supply chain just got all messed up during the pandemic. The global supply chain still messed up. And until those supply chains start to work again, we're going to continue to see high prices for that reason. John, if you, again, if you're a board member and you're trying to look uh, at the pace of your company's resilience from the pandemic, how worried should you be that all these factors aren't going to get worked out in the near term? And, I, and I'm, I'm fascinated by the relationship you say from the disruptions in the supply chain to the job participation rate. Is there a, a point in the future, a date where you're looking at to say, by this point, we'll, we'll know because some things will have happened? But we'll have more evidence post-September. Because the, from the labor standpoint, and those are supply chain disruptions of a kind. When you have working age people who don't want to come back to work, you know, some say that the rate at which they'll come back to work has moved up from, say, 50000 a year up to 65000 a year. Until we start to see uh, those disruptions start to ease, maybe some of the causes of those disruptions, we aren't going to know. But that's going to be a major period for boards to look at where do we see ourselves September, October, you know, you know, how long does it look like 
you know, the issues that, that occurred in the pandemic are still here. And that will partly, you know, have to do with whether or not the pandemic is really over uh, and whether the variants, you know, and the next wave of, of vaccinations that we need, the boosters, um, you know, uh, are in place, part of the functioning of the way this economy works and no longer something that will take the economy down. John, let's go back to the more traditional considerations. So we obviously have, as you mentioned, the, the historical, the traditional jobs data. Um, how do you compare the employment rate information coming from the Department of Labor or the unemployment rate data with against the job participation? If you're a committee member on, let's say, the Human Capital Committee, do you look at the unemployment rate more closely than the job participation rate? Um, how do you evaluate the two sets of data? Well, I think you just need to look at them both. And they both tell you know, a similar story right now. People you know, out of the workforce uh, either looking or just deciding not to look. And uh, what it means is that because we do have job openings you know, at record highs as companies try to get back to where they were, it means that the supply of workers is, again, especially at the kind of low middle levels, is really what's driving you know the difficulties in the economy. Both of those those two statistics are are crucial numbers to be looking at to see whether or not people have decided it's time to come back to work. I can't continue to exist yeah, without working on my savings and on the extra benefits that I might be receiving. John, does the government report those both in the same time period each month, or are they separately reported? Well, they, they're both in the same report in the labor report that comes out right at the beginning of each month. So that's something that, say, the Finance Committee and the Human Capital Committee might want to target or have their staff monitor. Uh, are they both from the Department of Labor? They are, both from the BLS um, in that same report. Uh, is something that maybe a little bit of homework for our committees and their staff. But now let me pivot a little bit, and I'm going to do so, John, and embarrass us both because we'll reflect our same age here. But but you and I and our colleagues, our peers, are part of the one of the last remaining generations that vividly remembers sustained inflation and, and all that is engendered. So, you know, Jimmy Carter and 18% interest rates and things of that nature that we saw when we were in school in the 70s. As we see signs or stories about inflation coming back, is it appropriate and reasonable for boards and their committees to monitor inflation? Or as Mr. Powell and others seem to suggest, not to worry, take the long view and that this is a blip. How do you view the importance of the inflation rate, John, as a factor that boards should keep in mind? Well, even the Fed, you know, taking and it's taking a stance right now that these are temporary numbers due to the pent-up demand from consumers and due to the, some of those supply bottlenecks that I was talking about. Probably those are the two primary factors. There's also, by the way, another factor, and it might be that the, the baby boomers are now retiring in droves. The pandemic uh, has really accelerated uh, that. Uh, again, leading to labor shortages, but certainly inflation is is crucial. Wage inflation is the driving most critical part of the phenomena that happens when inflation really gets going and it keeps accelerating. And that is 
workers demand more wages. They can go out and buy more goods and services. The goods and services, then the prices of those go up and then the uh, workers come back and demand more wages to stay up with that. So that kind of cycle, uh, if that gets going, is very dangerous for companies. We don't know if that will happen right now. The Fed is uh, reassuring us that uh, that's uh, not in their forecast. They think inflation this year is going to be somewhere in the range of 3.1 to 3.5 percent, and that will continue to come down as we move away from the pandemic back to the kind of longer term numbers we've been seeing. But they don't know yet, and nobody quite knows uh, what will happen as the economy changes coming out of this pandemic. Uh, we do know that uh, right now there's real disruptions in energy and food, the inputs of those going up. Certainly, that's going to be here for some time. John, again, let's go back to the board and its key committees. What are some important indicators from the inflation perspective uh, for them to keep an eye on, assuming that those numbers are separately reported from the employment and uh, job participation rates? What should they be monitoring and what should their response be if they see those numbers starting to tick up on a regular basis? Uh, Probably the most important ones are the consumer price index. Right now, that has year-over-year inflation at 5.0%. The core rate, which takes out food and energy, which are more volatile, is at 3.8%. Some think that the drought conditions in the West are causing some of the food issues. You know, Energy prices are more about supply chain. Uh, but those are two figures to look at, CPI and core CPI, and to watch those closely. Are you concerned at all that that we really have not at the corporate level and at the governance level had substantial or sufficient experience in responding to inflationary threats over the last 20, 30 years? Or is, are we selling boards and their finance teams short on that? No, uh, this is a generation that has not had to deal with inflation since it was rooted out of the system for the most part back in the 80s during the Volcker years. Uh, inflation has not been the issue. And as we moved into a global economy, much deeper global economy, and our workers have competed with workers from around the world, and yeah, that means that we can produce goods around the world, uh, that's kept inflation very low. But if it changes, if that dynamic changes, we'll have boards and companies that have not had to deal with how to manage in times of higher inflation. So taking a step back, John, we have at least three factors, four factors from the economic front that are perhaps new and more challenging for boards and their key committees. The job participation rate, the unemployment rate, supply chain barriers, and the inflation rate Do you have a general perspective on the time and attention that boards should be placing on these issues? Is it just normal course stuff, or should they be accelerating and elevating these issues to a higher level of board attention? I think right now it makes sense to elevate these economic factors. They're going to, every organization is going to have to deal with their effects, and they're not going along in a way that is consistent with what they've done over the last several years. The stats are haywire right now. Uh, We don't know quite where we're going to go. We're hoping that it'll come down and we'll just return to where we were pre-pandemic. 
and will continue along that path. But we don't quite know coming out of this period you know, what it's going to mean for our economy, the global economy. We don't quite know, you know how long this pandemic really is going to last. And so you know, at this moment, you can't count on them being the same as they've always been in a way you could just two years ago. And John, before we let you go, I, I need to ask you, from your bread and butter, the executive search and redeployment area, are you seeing any trends with the folks that you're working on in terms of CEO tur- turnover or movement that, that are unusual or that boards and their search and succession committees should be aware of? There's a lot of change going on in the executive suite right now uh, throughout the uh, entire um, set of functions. Uh, there are many people who stayed through the pandemic. Um, companies kept them on board. Boards kept them because you needed a, someone who'd been there rather than bringing someone new in to be a steady hand. But as the, as we do come out of the pandemic, many of those people now are leaving voluntarily. They're ready. They're done. Or we have boards who are saying, "All right, now is the time to start making the change." Uh, and so, uh, and then we have quits. You know that are at a record rates right now. And so companies, executive suites are being poached by others in a, in a heavy way. So it's a time of a lot of volatility in the executive suite. John Challenger of Challenger Grand Christmas, thank you so much for your insight. These are fascinating times and I can't imagine a more informative voice on economic issues for our client boards to be listening to than you. So John, thanks again for joining us today. You're so generous. Thank you, Michael. So nice to be with you. What a fun conversation. John Challenger has shared some very interesting thoughts on how healthcare directors and trustees should evaluate the latest economic trends and make sense of some of the crazy swings in economic indicators. He's flagged for us some critical dates that boards should monitor going forward for their economic results And he's helped underscore the very important role that economic awareness plays as part of the board's overall oversight responsibilities. You don't have to be Paul Samuelson to be able to apply basic economics to the boardroom discourse. Thanks so much for joining us for today's episode of Governing Health. For even more podcasts on healthcare at law and business from McDermott, subscribe to the McDermott Health Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Amazon, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Like, subscribe, and leave us a review so that we can continue bringing you the insider insights on business and legal developments that impact the business of healthcare. Until then, this is your host, Michael Peregrin, saying thanks for listening. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2021, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.